It is my great joy to invite you to open the infallible record of the Word of God to 1 Peter as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1. Before we look at our text this morning, let me invite you to think with me for a bit. Most people that I know that are not Christians are people that live without any hope. They really have no meaning in their life, no purpose for living, no assurance of life after death, no excitement about coming to that last moment of their life and anticipating the glories that await them because they know nothing of any of this. Life is merely a prison of despair and despondency for most people. People will therefore employ every means available to them to somehow alleviate the pain of their hopelessness. You see it in the way they live. You hear it in their voice. You read it in their philosophies. And certainly the world offers many things to alleviate that pain. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, work, materialism, entertainment. And of course, the greatest of all, false religions. I think of the terrorists that we are so familiar with these days. And I believe that hopelessness is part of what drives them. They're deceived by a false religion. They worship a God that does not exist, a God they call Allah. And their life is spent suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, trying to silence their conscience, trying to somehow deny the ache within their soul that screams the absence of genuine faith and a genuine relationship with a real God. And of course this makes them susceptible to any movement that will somehow give them identity, purpose, meaning in life and certainly offer them some hope for future blessing. Suicide bombers in countries that are lost in their hopelessness perceive them to be the most honored of all people. In fact, the PLO controlled newspaper in Palestine continues to print what they call wedding announcements for their recently departed terrorist sons whose martyrdom by killing innocent people has now been rewarded by a harem of dark-eyed virgins in paradise. And people are in these papers invited to join in the celebration. Of course, it's all a colossal, satanic, lie. But it's a lie that people buy because they're hopeless and they're deceived. Now this reality of hopelessness reaches far beyond the boundaries of Islam. It includes anyone who has not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this issue of hopelessness and I have to admit I got rather depressed for several hours as I did a search on the internet for different sites concerning hopelessness. Uh, 
you'd be surprised how many there are. And I thought I would just share one quote that's really the lyrics of a hopeless song called Waiting for the Fog. And it's interesting, it was written by a band, and of course there's a myriad of these so-called bands that are out there, but the name of this band is Hopelessness. And needless to say, their website is very dark and foreboding. And this particular song, Waiting for the Fog, which by the way is off of their album Broken Tears in Solitude, and I'm sure you're all going to want to run right out and buy this. But these lyrics, sadly, really summarize well the hopelessness of people without Christ. Here's what the lyrics say. Quote, The whispering breeze waits for its dimension quiet and still. I can't see the path where it wants to drive me. With other empty souls, I meet inside the darkness. I feel I'm getting in its dominion. My mind won't answer for me anymore. Madness is getting closer. I can't help me. It's defecting me. This destiny so unbearable, so broken off, it's helping me dig my tomb while I'm right to the middle of his inferno. It's destroying my loner self. I feel impotence in this situation. I'm inside his trap. It's hunted me, immersed in his kingdom of power. I fell. I could not get out. Trapped in the start like a tumor, knowing there's no forgiveness in this field of tombs, waiting for the fog to catch me. End quote. Well, such is the lament, dear friends, of people who are without Christ, people that are slaves to sin, people that are unwittingly worshiping their father, the devil, the father of lies who dis disguises himself as an angel of light. No hope, no joy, no meaning in life, only the gnawing reality that their soul is doomed for something horrible, something beyond their imagination. And we see this very type of thing in God's description in the Word of God describing the, the, the character of the lost, the character of the wicked. Let me give you a few of these that we find in Scripture. Those without Christ are characterized as abominable, alienated from God, blasphemous, blinded, boastful, conspiring against God's people, covetous, deceitful, destructive, disobedient, enticing to evil, envious, fearful, foolish, forgetting God, glorying in their shame, hard-hearted, hating the light, headstrong and haughty, hostile to God, hypocritical, ignorant of God, lovers of pleasure more than of God, murderous, prayerless, persecuting, perverse, proud, selfish, sensual, sold under sin, ungodly and unholy, to mention but a few. And of course, one of the major descriptions of people without Christ is that they're children of the devil, God tells us. In fact, the Scripture reminds us that they are accursed children, adversaries of the Lord, children of vile men, children of transgression, children in whom is no faith, children of the flesh, 
children of iniquity, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, children of pride, children of wrath, sons of the wicked one, sons of hell, sons of fools, sons of disobedience, sons of this world, sons of wickedness. In fact, the Lord said in Matthew 8, 12, that these sons of the kingdom, referring to Satan's kingdom, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Peter even reminds us in 2 Peter 2.17 that these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What a graphic depiction of hopelessness. Well, now that I've got you all really dark and depressed, let me give you the good news. Because of God's grace, dear friends, we have inconceivably glorious hope. And this we see in Peter's words. Now, you would think that Peter, of all people, knowing that he is about to be crucified because God has told him so, that this would be a man filled with hopelessness and gloom and despair. But instead, he is a man that is filled with inexpressible, transcendent joy and peace. You see, his hope was in the Lord. And those who hope in the Lord receive God's intimate care. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 33, 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. William Garnall, an old Puritan, has written this about her hope. He says, and I quote, Hope fills the afflicted soul with such inward joy and consolation that it can laugh while tears are in the eye, sigh and sing all in a breath. It is called the rejoicing of hope in Hebrews 3.6. Truly, hope is the saint's covering wherein he wraps himself when he lays his body down to sleep in the grave. My flesh, saith David, shall rest in hope. I remember when I read that, my heart broke forth in that great song that we sing so open or so often. Um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus name on Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, dear friends, here in this text this morning, Peter encourages the persecuted saints that are scattered all around Asia Minor. Those that are spiritual, spiritual aliens as we are in a hostile world. And he encourages them by reminding them of the living hope that they have, that we have in our eternal inheritance. In fact, this is really a hymn of praise that we're going to be looking at in verses 3 through 5 this morning. It's a hymn of praise, a joyous doxology. A doxology is something that flows from the heart. It's an overflowing of joy and praise and, and just a passionate sense of giving God glory. And in this hymn of praise, we have an opportunity to allow our hearts to soar beyond the swamps and sewers of our earthly existence 
into the glorious heights of our heavenly home and reflect upon those magnificent glories. And so I pray that this morning we, as we have the the privilege of examining this song of triumph and applying it to our hearts, that we will become more preoccupied with the hope that is ours. It's so easy, dear friends, for us to live our life. And maybe I could ask you right now, as you think about last week, how much did you think about what awaits you in glory? How much time did you spend reflecting upon all of the blessings of your inheritance? It's easy to take it for granted and to live as if what we have in this life on this earth is all there is. And when you think that way and live consistently with that misplaced priority in thinking, you literally forfeit blessing in your life and perhaps even reward in heaven. Well, let's read the text beginning in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This morning I would draw your attention to four elements of our hope that I pray will fan the flames of spiritual praise within your heart and enrich your understanding of the unspeakable benefits of our salvation. We're going to look at four things here. The source of our hope, the power of our hope, the promise of our hope, and the certainty of our hope. First of all, think of the source of our hope that Peter reminds us of here in verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So here in this text we see the source of our hope, The one we should bless, the one we should offer our praise to because of all that is ours, to the God, the one and only God, further identified here as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important for you to be reminded that repeatedly throughout Scripture, Jesus called God his Father, indicating his own deity, indicating the fact that he shares His Father's nature. He is one and the same. He is, as we would say in in theological circles, He is consubstantial. He shares the same essence as the Father. In fact, the entire triune Godhead shares the same essence. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, possesses therefore all of the divine excellencies of the Father. He is therefore co-equal. He is co-eternal with the Father. In fact, Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And in John 14.9, He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Now, what's amazing is that when you understand the fatherhood of God in Scripture, you see that first of all, He indeed is the father of all of his creation in the sense that he is the creator. 
In Ephesians 4, 6, we read that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So to that extent, he is even the Father as creator. He is the Father even of people that do not believe in him. But he is only the spiritual father to those who believe. You see, you must understand, and it's very dangerous to say this, we are not all God's children, all right? In Romans 8, verse 14, and even in verse 15, it says, only those who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It goes on to say that only believers have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then later on in verse 17, for this reason we read that, that we as believers are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So you must understand that indeed the Father saves from sin all those who come to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ and then He adopts us as His own, as His children, at the moment of our new birth and then He makes us His spiritual children. In fact... We read in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So, beloved, first we see that the source of our hope is our Heavenly Father, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important for you to understand as well that no one can possibly know God, the Father, apart from knowing the Son, you see. In fact, Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Now, I also want to add something as we think about the Father, the source of our glorious hope, the one who has caused us to be born again. What's fascinating to me and what is profoundly humbling to me is that according to Jesus' words in John 6.44, no one, he said, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word draw in the original language means to irresistibly compel, to take possession of something. It could even be translated to drag something it's like dragging something, kicking and screaming. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or you might could even say drags him, irresistibly compels him. By the way, that same term is used in Acts 16, 19 of Paul and Silas who were seized and dragged, it says, into the marketplace before the authorities. Likewise, it's used in James 2, 6, speaking of the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. That's the concept. Now, as a footnote to this, this divine dragging, if you will, this drawing of the Father is one of, I believe, many doctrines that refutes this notion of what is called prevenient grace. You hear this in some Arminian circles. It's the idea that they believe that God somehow gives a prevenient or a preparing grace, that he dispenses this grace to everyone and empowers the sinner, therefore, to exercise his free will to respond to the gospel invitation, causing a synergism whereby grace somehow 
cooperates. That's the key and operative word for them, that it cooperates with free will. Now, this is something that's not found in Scripture, but it is a philosophical notion that has been added to somehow guard against what they would believe the danger of making God completely sovereign over salvation and denying man's free will. But friends, again, Scripture is very clear that man's will is enslaved in his sinful nature. And he has therefore no desire to exercise his will apart from divine enablement. So therefore, the Father's got to drag him. It's the Father that has to do the drawing. And the Father's drawing is selective in that As we read Scripture, He draws or He compels all He has sovereignly chosen in eternity past. And it is also efficacious, meaning that it produces the desired effect, namely repentance and salvation. And so you've got to think of it this way. And this is why Peter is so excited as he encourages the beleaguered saints of the first century. He's saying in essence that like like dead men buried in a swamp of sin, utterly unable to help ourselves, the Father dragged us out of the filth and the mire of sin and breathed into us spiritual life and cleaned us up and made us righteous. What a glorious thought. And why did the Father draw us to Himself? Well, back to 1 Peter 1, 2. It says here, I should say verse 3, it's according to His great mercy. That God is merciful is such a precious thought. You see, you must understand, my friends, that, that mercy is literally God's love in action. It's God's goodness or benevolence that He lavishes upon us. In fact, many times the word mercy is translated loving kindness. Now, you must also understand that mercy is a little bit different than grace. You see, mercy, if I can say it real simply here, mercy changes our condition, but grace changes our position. To expand on that a little bit, mercy addresses the misery of our state while grace deals with our guilt and the sin that has corrupted us and left us in the dreadful condition in which we find ourselves apart from Christ. I might also add that mercy is to sin, or maybe I should say mercy accompanies sin like stench accompanies a corpse. Wherever you see sin, wherever you see people that are without Christ, you're going to find misery. You show me a man without Christ and I'll show you a man who is miserable, who is hopeless. Now, he is going to be desperate to deny that. And he will be committed to every imaginable opportunity to somehow free himself from the reality of his hopelessness. But believe me, in the, in the middle of the night... When he awakes and no one is around and it's just him before his creator, he is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and he is hopeless and he is afraid. Now, think of the misery of our condition 
before we came to Christ. That condition that was alleviated by the Father's mercy. As we look at Scripture, we read that before we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead, enslaved by sin, enemies of God, slaves of the kingdom of darkness, ruled by, as Ephesians 2 says, the prince and the power of the air, that's Satan. It goes on to say that we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now that is mercy. And folks, because He is merciful... The Father, once again, reached down and lifted us out of the wretched sewer of our sinful state. And then in His grace, He changes our position. He declares us righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, because of this great mercy, we have hope. Our Heavenly Father had mercy upon us. He dragged us out of the pit when we were unwilling and we were unable to come on our own. And not only did He drag us out, He then lavished us with undeserved love and every imaginable spiritual blessing. Therefore, we can echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 106, verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. His loving kindness endureth forever. So first Peter begins by reminding the people of the source of their hope. And then secondly, of the power of our hope. It's according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now folks, herein is the power. He caused us to be born again. This is the miracle of the new birth. That transformation that occurs at regeneration. As Jesus said in John 3, 8, this is that time when we are born of the Spirit. I reminded you last week of Titus 3 and verse 5. We have a description of the rebirth here, the new birth in the human soul and the Spirit. It says that He saved us, and it goes on to say, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, it can be translated born again or new birth. And as I told you last week, regeneration is that instantaneous and supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That impartation of the life of God that eternally transforms a person. That eternally transforms the governing disposition of a man. The old things pass away. We become a new creature, right? The old things pass away. The new things come. And then when you look at a new creature in Christ, you see a person that loves to be with God's people, that loves to worship with God's people corporately, that loves to serve in the body and use their gifts. They will have an insatiable appetite for the Word of God. They will have a secret devotion to God. They will long to share their faith with other people. They will have spiritual discernment. They will live to the glory of God and on and on it goes. This is the stuff of genuine saving faith because there has been a transformation, a re regeneration. They have been born again. And the Father 
has done this according to his great mercy. And as a result of that, we are born again to a living hope. James 1.18 says that in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. By the way, the verb there can also be rendered to give birth. He gave us birth. And how did he do it? It says by the word of truth. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. You see, this is an amazing yet unseen miracle, this regeneration. In fact, later on, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 that in Christ we become partakers of the divine nature. That's part of this new birth. And it is the new nature, this new nature that we have that then empowers us and energizes us eternally and therefore sustains the hope that is within us. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit sparks the flame within us. In fact, later on in chapter 1 here in 1 Peter, in verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. And so literally what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to produce this miraculous new birth. And the spiritual life that is then planted within us by the Holy Spirit is unfailing and it is permanent. Now think of it this way. Our divine nature, therefore, that the Father has caused to happen through the Holy Spirit, through this new birth, this divine nature is like an eternal fuel cell, if you will, that empowers us to live for His glory and to never lose hope that His promises will ever fail. No matter, no matter how bad life gets, because of this hope, that this living hope that we have, we continue to rejoice. I think of Job's words in Job 19.25, his world falling apart. And what does he say? I know that my Redeemer lives. He doesn't say, I think he does, and I'm pretty sure he does. I kind of think he does. I, I hope he does. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And he goes on to say, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. He was so excited about it. Now, how can he have such confidence? Because he's been given a new life. and The Holy Spirit of God bears witness to these glorious truths in his heart and in the heart of everyone who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating that Paul or that Peter here calls our hope a living hope. Now what's the opposite of something that's living? Something that's dead or dying. We don't have a dying hope. We have a living hope. A living hope that stirs us to action. That 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 is that is purifying, something that excites us. You see, true believers are going to be motivated servants. They're going to have a living hope. It's going to be contagious. When you're around them, you're going to see it and feel it and taste it and touch it. They're going to be passionate. They're, they're going to be zealous for Christ. They're going to be fervent. They can't wait to tell other people about what God has done in their life. They can't wait to get into the Word and understand more of who God is. 
You see, there's been such a transformation in their life that they're enthusiastic about spiritual growth. They're enthusiastic about their church. They're enthusiastic about heaven. They will be encouragers and exhorters and equippers. And folks, if that's not you, there's something wrong with your spiritual life. There is something wrong with your spiritual life. Sometimes I see people, even in this church, that seem to have a dying hope rather than a living hope. Any man, I believe, who calls himself a Christian, yet practices some private religion in isolation. Any man or woman that refuses to worship corporately with the saints and serve with the saints. Any person that refuses to be a part of a local body and discover and develop their spiritual gifts and put the Holy Spirit of God on display does not have a living hope. A person with a living hope is one that other Christians love to be around because life begets life. In fact, you can be around these type of people and their whole world can be disintegrating. Their whole world can be following or falling apart. And what did they say? They encourage you. Be of good cheer. God is in control. I trust Him completely. I have a living hope. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, folks, how does this happen to a person? Peter says in verse 3 that His great mercy has caused it to happen. He has caused us to be born again, to be transformed, to have a new birth, to a living hope. Child of God, what power we possess in our new nature. In fact, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Look in verse 3. Again, he says that it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May I remind you, in in Philippians 3.10, remember... Paul was longing for a more intimate knowledge of the power and the person of Christ. And he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. You see, we must understand that if Christ had not been risen, we would have no hope. We would have no hope. Our hope is living because our Savior is living. That's the idea. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. And He lives within us. The triune Godhead lives within us. We are united to God through Christ. In fact, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen: If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless Not only that, he says, you are still in your sins. But, since we are united with Christ, think of it this way. Whatever happened to Him will also happen to us. He was resurrected, raised from the dead, so too will we. You see, death has no dominion over us. Now, how can I say that with such authority? Because I'm united with Christ and because He was raised from the dead. And so, therefore... We can see here that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:22, "For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive." Folks, that's a living hope. 
So Peter encourages all the spiritual aliens, we ourselves included, by reminding us of the source and the power of our hope. But notice also the promise of our hope. In verse 4, you see, we do not hope in something, dear friends, that is trivial. Something that is, that is mundane. I mean, we're not hoping to go to the Cheatham County Fair next week, okay? In verse 4, we hope to obtain an inheritance. An inheritance. The word denotes property, possession. And I'll speak more to that in a moment. Spurgeon has said it so well. I love what he said regarding this. He says, God has been pleased in His abundant mercy to prepare for His people an inheritance. He has made them sons, and if children, then heirs. He has given them a new life, and if a new life, then there must be possessions and a place suitable for that new life. A heavenly nature requires a heavenly inheritance. Heaven-born children must have a heavenly portion. Now again, I understand that the new life that God has given me, the longings of my heart and so forth, cannot be fully enjoyed in this current state. Likewise for all believers. We're made for another existence, citizens of another kingdom. And that's where our inheritance will be. Now let me speak to this heavenly portion for a moment. In Colossians 1.12, we have a hint about this. There, Paul says, give thanks to the Father. Once again, the same concept. Give thanks to the Father. Why? Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Well, here Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament by alluding to the specific land allotments given to the Israelites when they entered into Canaan to possess it. You read about that in in Numbers 26 and Numbers 33 and so on. And the word inheritance here literally means a portion of the lot. A portion of the lot. We have an inheritance. It's part of something. It's as though our names are written on something that belongs to us, a possession that is ours. And so again, in Colossians 1.12, he's saying that the Father has qualified, or in other words, authorized us, and according to... Of course, he's done this according to his grace. He's authorized us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Light, by the way, being a synonym for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it will be in this glorious kingdom that each believer will be given a specific portion of the total divine inheritance. Now, we don't know what all that will include. But it's a marvelous thought in and of itself. The language would help us understand that perhaps it has to do with specific possessions, privileges, spiritual blessings that are beyond our ability to comprehend. And by the way, folks, when you begin to think about this, all of the problems of this life begin to pale into insignificance. And that was exactly Peter's motivation through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to somehow lift the hearts of these beleaguered saints. We read more of this inheritance in Colossians 3.24. It says, Know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. No wonder 
Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? It's gain. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul said that because of our Father's great mercy, we have obtained an inheritance. Hebrews 9.15, it says that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So again, Peter in this text is trying to encourage those persecuted saints to somehow fix their eyes on the eternal. Get them off the temporal. Look beyond it all. In fact, Paul admonished the Colossian believers in a similar manner in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He goes on to say, set your mind on these things, on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. It's so sad, and I have to deal with this so often. Believers who have this living hope, or they should have if they're genuinely born again, Maybe they don't understand their inheritance and all that belongs to them in Christ, but for whatever reason, you don't see a living hope being manifested in their life, but you see a dying hope. They remind me of Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. Everything is dark and gloomy. And you spend about five minutes around them and you want to go shoot yourself. And when I get around very pessimistic, whining, morose type of believers, I, especially when I counsel them, I always want to first of all ask them to write down what types of things preoccupy your mind. Now, of course, I'm giving this all away to you, so if you ever come to me in that type of a condition, you're already going to know where I'm going. But what I'm trying to do is prove to them that all they think about is all of the junk, all of the negative stuff in their life. And after I ask them that question, they immediately start spitting out all of this stuff with all of this passion and things that might have happened 30 years ago, but boy, it's as if it happened yesterday. And again, after about five minutes of it, I want to go jump off a bridge. It is so negative. But then you ask them, okay, here's what you think about. Here's what preoccupies your mind and your heart, but what would God have you focus on? And the answer is found here in the text that we're looking at. He wants you to focus on your inheritance. As, as, as Paul said in Philippians 4.8, that we're to let our mind dwell on things that are true and honorable and right, pure, lovely, of good repute. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Well, this was, again, Peter's passion. And I always want to remind you that Peter was passionate about this even in the face of an excruciating death by crucifixion. I want you to notice three characteristics of our inheritance in verse 4. It is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Imperishable means that it's not subject to corruption. Uh, it's not subject to destruction. It has no capacity to decay. It has no vulnerability to death or decay. No one can steal it. No one can destroy it. It's imperishable. It's also undefiled, which means it's unstained. It's unpolluted. Imagine living in a world where sin is no longer present. 
It means uncontaminated by sin. And then it's not only that, it says that it will not fade away. That has the idea of it will not diminish in its beauty, in its majesty. Unlike a rose that might blossom and show forth its splendor for a few hours, the magnificent glories of heaven will never fade away. It will never be diminished. Oh, child of God, what what splendor awaits us? All because of what? The Father's mercy who drew us unto Himself. Ah, the skeptic says, but what must I do to ensure that someday I will be able to lay claim to my inheritance? What if in my sin I forfeit it? What if in my pride I exchange it or in my stupidity I renounce it? Dear friends, you must understand that you can do no more to lose it than you could to gain it. It's all of grace. And herein is the fourth point of this text. We have the certainty of our hope. Notice in verse 4, the end, it says that our inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. The term reserved, by the way, is a military term. And it connotes the idea of a garrison of soldiers that vigilantly guards and defends some precious possession that belongs to someone else. In fact, the grammar here indicates that this is something that already exists and is being carefully guarded. All right? That's what our inheritance is. It's something that already exists. Right now, it exists. Your portion of the lot exists right now. And it's being carefully guarded by Almighty God, by His angelic hosts. And therefore, and I want you to hear this, neither the enemy of our souls nor all of His minions, His demonic hosts, nor any human being can ever break through and steal or corrupt the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Nor could our own foolishness even forfeit or exchange or renounce our salvation. Why? Verse 5, it says that our inheritance is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to notice the shift here. It's very important that you see this, especially those of you who have been deceived by the error that you can somehow lose your salvation. Not only is our inheritance reserved, protected by God in heaven, but it shifts here to we who are the recipients of our of that inheritance. It says who, in other words, we are protected. The saints are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Folks, this is eternal security. You see, it is God who, as Jude says in Jude 24, is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. He is the one that causes that to happen. If it was left up to us, we would blow it. 
For this reason, the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul expressed the same unwavering confidence of his future inheritance to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. It says there, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we come back to Peter's words here, they're powerful words of encouragement that I believe should forever silence those who insist that salvation is not eternal, that believers can lose their salvation, because after all, the human will remains free and can therefore rescind its earlier faith in Christ by choosing to apostatize. But again, folks, Scripture is clear. True believers have been given eternal life. It is eternal life. And it's been given to us as a present possession. Moreover, it is kept secure by Christ, according to the Lord's words in John 10, 28. And as we see here in 1 Peter 1, 5, by the power of God through faith. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but that's a vault that I can put my trust in. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 8, we read that for by grace you have been saved. And the grammar literally helps us understand, and it could be translated this way, you are having been saved. In other words, salvation is a past event with continuing results in the present. It is something that God has initiated, something that God will sustain, and something that God will ultimately consummate. This is the absolute certainty of our hope. And therefore, a profound encouragement. Folks, I don't know how else to say it. Our inheritance is secure because our salvation is secure. Now, based on this, how silly would it be for someone to come along and say, Oh, my goodness, we've seen a number of people here this year lose their salvation. And therefore, God has to say to the angels that are with him, preserving and protecting our inheritance. Boy, hey, we've lost 250 believers today. 250 believers have apostatized today, so no sense guarding their portion anymore. I don't know what God does with that. Maybe He divvies it up with the rest of the people that are still saved. And maybe what He has to say is, well, you know, we've reserved this for these people in heaven, but since they've apostatized now... um, I guess maybe what we need to do is maybe put it on hold until eventually they die because they may repent and get saved again. To which the angels reply, but 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 God, we we thought it was you who initiated salvation and who gave them a new nature and who made them a new creation and who secured and protected All that is theirs in Christ. To which God would have to reply, well, that is unfortunately a mistaken notion because 
After all, it is not necessarily me who is in charge of salvation. I'm in charge of everything else. I'm sovereign over all else, but I'm not in charge of salvation. Ultimately, it is man's free will that has the capacity to do as he pleases when he pleases. Well, so much for regeneration. But God, we thought that they were given the new nature of Christ. They were made to be partakers of the new nature. Well, yes, but now they've decided they don't want that anymore. So that new nature is no longer the new nature and they're back to the old nature. Dear friends, we are united to Christ. We are his possession And therefore, as the scripture says here in this text and so many others, our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. What is the last time? Well, that's a reference to the final end of redemptive history. The rapture will take place first. Then the second coming of Christ in the millennial kingdom. At that time, there will be the renovation of the earth back to redeeming splendor. At the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be the recreation of the heavens and the earth, a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be at that point, my friends, that we will experience the fullness of our inheritance. Those that have gone on before us experience some of it now, but they don't experience all of it yet. And of course, our greatest joy will be God himself. As the psalmist has said, in thy presence is fullness of joy forevermore. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Well, is there any wonder, my friends, why Peter began this letter to those spiritually persecuted and physically persecuted spiritual aliens by, first of all, reminding them, as we noticed last week in his salutation, of the triumphant truths of their election, reminding them that they were chosen, they've been chosen, sanctified, sealed, and blessed. And then on the basis of that, his heart explodes into this doxology Where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A doxology that helps them understand and us understand the source of our hope, the power of our hope, the promise of our hope, and, beloved, the confidence of our hope. Well, may I challenge you this morning to do as Peter has asked us all to do in verse 3, to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give Him praise. Will you do that? Could I ask you this morning as your pastor to examine your heart and say, Father, how can I bless you more? How can I show more gratitude to you? How can I praise you more? What can I do? And of course, the answer is going to be you can pray more. We could serve more. We could give more. We could sing more. We could do more to manifest a living hope and therefore join in Peter's great doxology of hope. Let's pray together. 
Father, these magnificent truths encourage our, encourages our heart. It stirs within us all that You have placed within us. And we praise You for that living hope. And Lord, I pray that because of Your great mercy and our understanding of that, that we, we will be motivated to live out that hope in a way that the whole world can see that others will come to a saving knowledge of Christ because of it, that You will be glorified because of it, and that we will be blessed. For I pray this in the precious name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.